This is a Sunday Talk by Joel, titled, Left Hand of God, recorded November 8, 1992, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Detachment, writes Meister Eckhart, is the best of all virtues, for it purifies the soul and cleanses the conscience and enkindles the heart and awakens the spirit and stimulates our longings and shows us where God is and separates us from created things and unites itself with God. Detachment, of course, is one of our four basic principles at the center, and if you examine all mystical traditions, you find detachment is pivotal in every mystical tradition. Uh, there is no such thing as a spiritual path without detachment being practiced along the way. In, uh, at the center, uh, in our way of practicing, uh, there are four basic principles, attention, commitment, detachment, and surrender. And detachment here, again, is pivotal. Uh, detachment requires attention and commitment. You can't very well practice detachment unless you're paying attention to what your attachments are. And uh, it requires a commitment to, to do the practice. Uh, so, if you're practicing detachment, you have at least some uh, some ability to pay attention, and you've already made some commitment. But a detachment's a funny uh, principle, and it's uh, often a very misunderstood principle. And it also unfolds in stages. You start to practice it, and you start to practice it the only way you know how. And the more you practice it, the more you realize you're practicing it wrong. Of course, this is how a spiritual path unfolds anyway. And you keep doing it, the more and more you realize this is wrong, and so that makes you try another way to practice it, and you practice that for a while, and you realize this is wrong, and you keep practicing, and you realize this is wrong until you stumble on what is right. And once you've stumbled on the right way to practice it, you're already practicing surrender. But what is detachment, if it's so pivotal? What actually is it? Meister Eckhart says here, he tells you why. It purifies the soul, it cleanses conscience, the conscience, enkindles the heart, and awakens the spirit, and stimulates our longings, and shows us where God is. But what is it? How do you practice it? In a practical way. Now, some of you I know have been practicing this, so... You've never heard this before. You've never <laughs> tried it before. You have no experience with this. Yes, why? Well, I guess on a real practical level, it's it's letting go of things, not getting so attached to things. Good, right? Things. What else? Whatever yeah. arises, never let it go. Whatever arises. Whatever arises. What do you mean by letting go here? Not, um, not engaging, not giving energy to it. Whatever arises, consciousness, thought, feeling. Good. That's actually a nice way to put it. Not, not giving energy to whatever arises. How do we give energy to things? By identifying with them. Identifying with them, very good. Identifying with them in what sense, though? We have different ways of identifying. Well, by seeing them as, as who you are or as who someone else is. So, specifically, detachment, and it's a key part of detachment, is to observe what you think you are and to try to realize that you aren't that, to disidentify with what you have previously identified with. Good. Yeah. There's also an aspect of, um, as uh, Paul said, not giving energy to, but that involves more than not clinging to something. It also implies not pushing things away, just letting things be, letting things arise and pass of their own in consciousness. Jumping ahead here. He's a smart one. <laughs> Krishna tells Arjuna... I love the man of devotion. He is equal-minded to friend and foe, to honor and shame, heat and cold, to pleasant and unpleasant things. 
He is a silent sage, equally unaffected by praise and blame. He is content with whatever comes his way. This is a description of a practice of detachment. He is equal-minded to friend and foe. By the way, the, one of the values of reading a passage like that is it's a little bit of a mirror. Now you can go look in this mirror and see if you're practicing detachment. Are you equal-minded to friend and foe? To honor and shame? Heat and cold? Pleasant and unpleasant things? Are you equal-minded when pleasant things happen and also when unpleasant things happen? He is a silent sage, equally unaffected by praise and blame. Well, that's a good one. All of you who, uh, especially in a work situation, this is where this comes up. You can see if you're, if you're unaffected by praise or blame. When your boss comes along and, and criticizes you, and, uh, or then when your boss comes along and praises you. Or maybe not your boss, maybe just a co-worker. Or a customer, if you happen to be in sales. But when we read a description like this, what usually forms in our mind is an idea that a detachment is somehow a kind of indifference. Not to be confused with the wolf's high indifference, but a low indifference. That somehow it's a question of becoming stoical in the face of these uh, pleasant and unpleasant things. We sometimes imagine a yogi sitting there in the winter and you know naked in the in the snow collecting on him and he doesn't flinch. And then the sun, the summer comes and the sun boils and he doesn't flinch. We imagine maybe this is detachment. The Buddha said, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, proceed to the opposite shore with a free mind, leaving all suffering behind. There's another angle on detachment here in relation to time. Let go of the past, let go of the future, even let go of the present. What would that mean? And sometimes in speaking more popularly, we talk about staying in the present. We can understand letting go of the past, letting go of the future, but what does letting go of the present mean? We add this into the pot, we might imagine this, um, this yogi here sitting on this rock. Not only is he sitting there unflinching in the, in the blizzards and in the boiling sun, but his mind is empty. No thought arises in the past, the present, or the future. Maybe, maybe we can't distinguish them from the rock itself. Abin Arabi writes about Sufis. They have made themselves ever ready to receive whatever comes from God and have withdrawn completely from their separate selves and their aims. This gets a little bit more to the purpose of detachment here. And it also starts to have a hint of a something more than just this sort of stoical, unflinching attitude in the face of whatever arises. To make yourself ready to receive is quite a bit different. How do you make yourself ready to receive whatever comes from God? They've made themselves ready to receive whatever comes from God and have withdrawn completely from their separate selves and their aims. Now we might think of someone who's uh, going to, uh, has invited a, a very dear friend over for dinner. And so you're going to play host or hostess. And you make ready to receive them. And perhaps it's someone that you... Uh, deeply loved in the past, but it's been gone for a while, and you don't know uh, what they're going to be like when they show up. Oh, we might take an example. For instance, uh, 
perhaps it's a prisoner of war who's been uh, uh, held in a prison camp for years. And you know there's going to be uh, questions in your mind. How did this experience change them? Maybe they're not going to be the kind, loving person that you knew uh, before they went away. But nevertheless, you want to be ready to receive. You want to be ready to understand. You want to be ready to accept whatever they uh, are like now, however they've been changed by this experience. So you've prepared a homecoming meal. And you've gone around, you've fixed up the house, and, and everything's ready, and now you're waiting for them to come. And you're trying to turn away from your own fears and doubts and questions and anxieties about what this meeting is going to be like. Your own separate aims and selves. You're trying to uh, make this homecoming as... as um, wonderful, as easy, as loving as you can. That's quite a bit different now from a yogi sitting on a rock with not a thought passing through his mind and not a muscle flinching in his body, isn't it? Finally, this is from one of the Hasidic masters, and he's talking about prayer and how you feel during times of prayer. At times you may feel the left hand of God pushing you away. At other times, God's right hand draws you near. But even as you are pushed away, know still that this is only for the sake of your return. Even as you feel the might of God's left hand upon you, see that it is God himself who touches you. This too, accept in love, and trembling, kiss the hand that pushes you. Now, this is quite different idea here of detachment than the yogi sitting unflinching in a rock. What is the meaning of this? This is where detachment starts to turn into surrender. And not just a, a sort of a passive surrender. This is an active, uh, loving surrender. Much more akin to that waiting for the person to return from a POW camp. Notice that one of the criti uh, critical points he's trying to make is the feeling, how you feel when you're praying or when you're meditating. Sometimes you feel, oh, it's going wonderfully. You feel tranquil and you feel peace. You've perhaps experienced beauty and clarity. And other times you're feeling confused and restless and anxious. Not just in meditation or prayer, but extend that out to the day. Some days are wonderful. Everything went just right. Some days nothing goes right from the moment you get up. Most days are a mixture all through the day of those two things. The right hand and the left hand. The right hand and the left hand. And often we begin a spiritual path trying to eliminate something. Something is wrong with our lives, with the world, whether we call it delusion, we learn all our spiritual terms, you know, we're going to now eliminate, uh, instead of eliminate, uh, gross sufferings we're going to eliminate now, delusion and ignorance and this and that. We're still bringing to it the same attitude that we had in worldly seeking, the same strategy, and the same dualistic view of the world. There's the good and the bad. There's what's pleasant and what's unpleasant. And our whole strategy is to cling to, to get, and cling to what's pleasant, what's good, whether it's gross material stuff or whether it's high spiritual states. And to get rid of or avoid what's unpleasant. And when you become spiritual, you want to avoid what's unspiritual. 
And we don't see that all of it is nothing but the two hands of the same God. Now, in Hasidic terms, uh, the the love of God is cultivated. We can we can just think of this as the, uh, in our terms, the uh, love of consciousness, if you like. The love of consciousness that is the love that comes from consciousness and circles through us back to consciousness. To embrace all of the world as consciousness embraces all of the world. Now, this has nothing to do with Stoicism, with this low indifference with not feeling any emotions about things that arise. Quite the contrary. The right hand of God is known through the emotion it creates. If there was no emotion, you wouldn't know the right hand of God. In this case, it's the emotion of elation and rapture and bliss. The left hand of God is known through the emotion it creates. Confusion, doubt, worry, cares and woes. It's the same God. You cannot have the right hand without the left hand. You cannot have the cat that purrs and is comforting without the cat that also sheds and shits. It's, it's a delusion to think that there's a cat who's only uh, purrs and is comforting and that there's some other cat that shits and sheds that you could get rid of. It's the same cat. The experiences in prayer, in meditation, and by extension in the world are the same aspects or aspects of the same consciousness. And what a spiritual path is about is really learning just this, that you can't get away from it. Being totally convinced that you can't get away from it. And you can only do that by continuing to try. This isn't something you can, uh, by an act of will, say, well, I'm going to stop doing this. But when you prove to yourself on your pillow that you are never going to have just perfect, blissful, clear meditations. After doing this for years and years, you, you begin to realize it's just never going to be the way I'm imagining it can be. Then you can take, start to take that lesson into life. It's never going to be just the right hand of God. And what happens then? Let's listen to a real master of masters of this. Perhaps I should say mistress of mistresses. Lady Tsoigal, who is a great mystic in the Tibetan tradition, Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Now, in the Tibetan tradition, you can think of the Buddha mind as having four aspects. Mirror-like awareness, Awareness of sameness, discriminating awareness, all-accomplishing awareness, and awareness of dynamic space. <coughs> if you know anything about Tibetan Buddhism, these are related to the five <laughs> Buddha families, the five aspects of uh, the, the essential Buddha nature. We don't have to get too technical about this. But these are awarenesses that are to be cultivated and realized through meditative practice and through practice of precepts and cultivating bodhicitta and the whole path. Now, listen to what Lady Tsoigal says about this and how you can realize these things. I think you'll find it quite shocking. Know that aggression and malice are mirror-like awareness itself. Radiance and clarity have no other source than a hostile mind filled with anger and en enmity. 
Look into your anger, and there is the strength of diamond being. Detached from appearances, you are purified in emptiness. Aggression and malice are mirror-like awareness. Radiance and clarity have no other source than a hostile mind filled with anger and enmity. If you're spending your uh, time in spiritual practice trying to get rid of a hostile mind full of anger and enmity, you're getting rid of mirror-like awareness. You're getting rid of the source of this realization. Know that pride and vain complacency are awareness of sameness. Primal purity and meditative composure, composure cannot be found except in an ambitious mind that believes itself supreme. Look into natural purity and there is a fountain of jewels. Detached from the state of emptiness, light form is pure. Pride and complacency are awareness of sameness. Primal purity and meditative composure cannot be found except in an ambitious mind that believes itself supreme. What sort of teaching is this? Know that desire and covetousness are discriminating awareness. You will find sensory distinction in no other place than a mind hungering for beautiful things, wanting the whole world. Look into the intrinsic freshness of your desire, and there is boundless light. Detached from radiance, your pleasure is purified. Desire and covetousness are discriminating awareness. What is this? What is this teaching? Know that envy and alienation are all, all accomplishing awareness. Efficiency and success have no other source than a bigoted mind that is quick to judge and hold a grudge. Look behind jealous thoughts and there is immediate success. Detached from crass envy and subtle resentments, whatever occurs is pure. Know that ignorance and stupidity are awareness of dynamic space. There is no other way to hold fast to the path than through ignorance and a dense understanding. Look into ignorance and there is dynamic visionary panorama. Detached from hypnotic states, whatever arises is pure. One of you said just a little while ago something about whatever arises, being allowing whatever arises to happen, right? She's telling you how to really find what that means. Look into ignorance and stupidity. Look into ignorance and stupidity and detach from hypnotic states. That is any special states, samadhis, blisses, states of clarity, any sort of meditative states, any sort of right-handed states. Detach from any particular state. Then whatever arises is pure. Whatever arises is not purified, it is pure. Now this is, I gotta warn you, a high teaching. This is in no way a justification for going out and being bigoted and cultivating jealousy and so forth. In point of fact, you don't have to cultivate bigotedness and anger and jealousy. If you are a human being, they will arise in you. If you are a god or a goddess, they'll arise in you. Go read the tales of the gods and goddesses. They will be there. And they, in a certain sense, are your greatest teachers. And when you get tired of practicing trying to achieve this stoic state of this uh, unflinching yogi, when you get tired of doing it, when that gets exhausted in you because it cannot be done, then remember this. Instead of uh, trying to 
make yourself emotionally invulnerable to the world. Turn around and see what it would be like to prepare yourself to receive the world. To receive the whole world as God. To be willing to look at whatever walks through the door straight. Not to turn away. Not to go, oh, how terrible that is. Oh, what a horrible experience you're presenting me with. Look straight at it. Look deep into it. Take the left hand of God as your greatest teacher. And this is why the Hasidic master said, kiss the left hand of God. Not just endure the left hand of God. Not just put up with it. Not just say, oh, well, that's the way the world is. Grab hold of it. And finally, at the core of all this, the very thing that in all mystical teachings is to be undone, ignorance. Ignorance is the well where the secret resides. If you're running away from ignorance, you will never, ever, ever find it. It's right in the heart of ignorance. This is why in, uh, Nagarjuna said, uh, enlightenment is, n is nothing else than ignorance. And ignorance is nothing else than enlightenment. So I wanted to present some of these teachings this morning. Um, to give you an idea of the direction that a, a practicing a principle like detachment takes you. Not that you're going to understand Lady Zeugel's words here, just because I quoted them to you. But the practice of detachment, as the, and the practice of all spiritual principles, unfolds and deepens. It's not what you expect. Don't become complacent. If the practice isn't going well, it's not your fault that isn't going well. Look into that. If you're not achieving clarity states all the time after you've been meditating around here for a year or two, it's not a problem of, the, of, of you, and it's not a problem of the teaching. So don't become discouraged and say, oh, I'm never going to be a meditator. And don't turn around and say, oh, well, these teachings must be wrong. I've got to go find some other teaching. What is going on in that situation? That situation itself is the left hand of God. Look more deeply. Look more deeply. Look more closely. It's in the very difficulties of the practice that the insights are hidden. So, if you can drop your desire to be rid of desire, drop your uh, hankering to be rid of hankering, drop your aversion to being a person who's averse to things, try that for a while. Any questions? Yeah. I wonder about, it seems like in order to be detached, you have to surrender. What would be the distinction there between the two? Explain that a little bit. Well, in order to let something arise and pass away, or I always think of the wind and just letting it blow through me and when I have to let go of something, surrender something in myself in order for that to happen. So I get kind of confused. You surrender uh, to attention 
uh, you have to be detached. Before you can be detached, you have to be committed. Before you can be committed, you have to pay attention. It's, it's, a, it's a, a garland, a circle, really. You're absolutely right. This is why you start to practice one, and uh, you can't separate them. All the other things will be brought into play automatically. If I grab this cat's tail and start pulling him, the whole cat's going to come. <laughs> it's okay. I just needed a little while. <laughs> I need a little visual aid. <laughs> I can't take the cat's tail without taking the cat's head along with it. You know what I mean? I can talk about, look, this is a very good example. I can talk about the cat's head. I can talk about the cat's tail. I can talk about the cat's feet. You know what I mean? But I can't actually, uh, you know, take one without the other. And, and this applies to the whole world. I can talk about the left hand of God, and I can talk about the right hand of God. But I can't take one without getting the other. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. The trick, however, though, is to, is to see that in the practice, not just intellectually. You know, we, we can all stop and, and, and realize intellectually, yes, well, the cat's one thing, and, uh, well, of course, when we talk about the head and the tail, there's no clear-cut d- distinction here. It's an imaginary distinction that separates the head from the body. Do you see what I mean? But that's fine. That's, that's, it's good to have that intellectual understanding. But when push comes to shove, to carry the metaphor all the way through, what happens? Do you see that? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to me, a, of course, these teachings are potentially very confusing. Uh, the, the teachings of uh, you know, welcoming all of the impediments on the path and stuff. Can you can you speak a little bit more about how somebody? Uh, who is not at the level of the highness of this teaching from Lady Soigel can more practically implement this teaching. It's, it's just looking. Let's take one emotion, jealousy. Now, a worldly person who has no idea of spiritual teachings or anything uh, will often take jealousy to be perfectly natural and will justify it. Do you know what I mean? Somebody that you... Uh, love uh, is, uh, I don't know, the, the, the crudest and probably most universal case is somebody you love is paying attention to somebody else and you get jealous. And you defend that you and you will talk to that person afterwards. So you get home and they've been flirting with somebody at a party and you'll say, you know, stop that, you're making me jealous, you know. And it hurts being jealous, everybody knows that too, that's why we criticize their spouses when they go flirt with other people. Now, you get on a spiritual path and you begin to realize that the suffering caused by jealousy is your own suffering. You stop blaming the other person. Do you know what I mean? So you start looking inward and you start saying, oh, well, really it's not the other person's fault. This this jealousy is something that's arising in me. It arises in me if I cultivate it and so forth. It it creates suffering, and you can even look farther and see how it, it starts to create further and further, or larger and larger ripples of suffering because it'll affect the whole relationship. Do you know what I mean? So then your next instinct is to stop being jealous. This is what we do. You see, this is the, trying to be the, the unflinching yogi. So I won't let jealousy arise. So the next party you go to and your, your uh, spouse starts flirting, you feel that jealousy rising, but you push it down, and, you know what I mean? Or you, or you feel it arising and you ignore it and you go talk to somebody else and you have all these strategies for dealing with it, right? Now, what Lady Soigel is saying is, wait a minute, the next time you go to a party, don't cultivate it and, and own it and justify it, but don't try and pretend it isn't there or think that you can overcome jealousy, uh, you know, by some spiritual technique or method that it isn't going to arise. The next thing then is to experience that jealousy and look directly into it. 
Just what I mean? Unflinchingly into it. Look and do it straight. Not only that, take the, a whole different attitude towards it. Instead of it being something bad, it's simply another hand of God, the left hand of God. You see what I mean? And this hand of God is, in the ultimate sense, is just as much God as the right hand of God, which in this case would be when you and your mate are feeling wonderful and lovey together and everything else. Do you know what I mean? And so when, when that good feeling comes along, then you're perfectly willing to be uh, grateful to God and think, oh, this is wonderful. This is part of the spark of God's love in my life. And now I know what love is. Do you know what I mean? When the jealousy comes along, though, you don't want to say, oh, this is wonderful. This is part of God in my life. Not at all. But this is what she's saying. Look at it, and then you will see that it actually is. Welcome it. So, it's really goes back to employing our four principles again, only this at a higher level. Paying attention, making a commitment to stay with that, do you know what I mean? Not to look away, not to push it away, not to try and run away. Being detached now, not from the jealousy, but from the more subtle desire to escape the jealousy. The more subtle images to be a spiritual person who doesn't get jealous. Do you see what I mean? You've, the, the, the detachments, the, the, the principle of detachment now operates on an even subtler level. And then finally, just to surrender to that jealousy that's arising. You know, open the door. This person's come back from a POW camp. Uh, they may have nightmares and uh, all sorts of horrible things, you know. But you've got the door open. That's what that surrender, that gesture is, to welcome. To actually welcome. In that process, something happens. In that process, her teaching is revealed. That's an insight. Which one was... Uh... Envy and alienation, all accomplishing awareness. It won't occur, occur to you in her terms unless you're practicing uh, Tibetan Buddhism. But you will see something about this jealousy, this envy, that you it, it'll, something will reveal itself about it that you never saw before. Or perhaps we could say the other way, something will fall away that's always been blocking your perception of this, of its true nature, we might say. So it's a question, doing the same things, but it gets more subtle and it gets more, um, uh, it, it, it jumps to a higher level, higher just here because we need some descriptive term. The whole practice starts to be more subtle and jumps to a higher and higher level. And so the things that you thought you were trying to, you know, how you're trying to practice detachment in the beginning, you realize, well, that really isn't detachment, you know? If I don't want to have jealousy in my life, that's, that's nothing but aversion and desire all over again, you know? When you, when you're looking, when you look straight at jealousy, is it, uh, is it is it experiencing jealousy or trying to look behind it or is looking straight at jealousy? We only have words borrowed from our sensory language. You see what I mean? Looking behind it, looking, you know what I mean? <coughs> the best I can do is to say, look, look it straight in the eye. That's a word that comes close to uh, the meaning of this. To experience fully, but then you're going to try and experience this more fully. Jealousy's just there. You won't have any trouble experiencing it fully when it's there. Do you know what I mean? Uh, it's a question of not turning away. Now, again, all these are taken from our, our physical surroundings. We have an image of a head turning away, looking someone straight in the eye. You, they're metaphorical. But they, they, you, then you have to watch, when you experience jealousy, what happens here. What does it mean not to look at it straight in the eye? 
and you feel, this is a question of feel and experience, you will feel, uh, you'll start to recognize your own little desires to escape from this moment, you know what I mean? Let's move on to something else here, you know what I mean? Or, or to do something about it. To grab your mate and drag her off in the back room and say, hey, you know, quit flirting with all these people, you know what I mean? I'm your husband here, this is embarrassing, or whatever, you know? I mean, it's not a question of don't do, it's a question of watching that little impulse arise. Either way. Then we carry it further. Okay, now watch that impulse too. Look that straight in the eye. You see? Um, <clears throat> look at it straight in the eye until it dissolves. No, 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 not until anything. <laughs> you want to do something with it again until it. Yeah. <laughs> Now just you look, then you come back and tell me. Don't set up a, you know, an expectation of something to happen. Let me think about paradox, though. It seems like it turns into an infinite uh, regress, like uh, to be detached from the desire to cultivate detachment, and then if you have to be detached from that, you can keep backing off one notch from that level to where you've got a whole string of concepts about detaching from the last effort to detach. And uh, that's the nature of the koan, it seems to me, to just sort of bend your mind until you break it over your knee and then you move on. Well, that is the secret. Fortunately, it's the open secret that no one gets, so there's really not too much harm in telling it. Uh, <laughs> but this is what happens. Eventually, the, the, think the ego mind gives up. I mean, it gives up because it's, it's totally ignorant of what now to do. It's completely stupid. It's finally at the point where it's completely ignorant and completely stupid. And there is nothing more for it to do. You can't give it up, but it just stops. It falls silent, if we can use a, a metaphor, you know. It becomes still. And when it falls silent and becomes still, the realization is possible it, it really wasn't there. This is like a very common image in many traditions of a firebrand or a sparkler. When you were a kid, or maybe still as an adult, on the 4th of July, you go out at night and you take a sparkler and you wheel around and it looks like there's a circle there in the night. You know, you ever seen that? Mm -hmm. And if you do it fast and steady, I mean, it really looks like there's a steady circle there that you could go, you know, put your finger through or pick it up or carry it around or maybe have a ring. And as long as that activity is going, that's, it looks like there's a circle there. When the arm gets so tired it can't do that anymore, and the arm stops, what happened to the circle? And that is the realization. It wasn't, it was an appearance, but there really wasn't any circle there, you see what I mean? So, this is exactly what Lady Tsoikl means in, in terms of don't be afraid of ignorance and stupidity. Or as uh, Sansin used to say, a Zen master, don't be afraid of don't know mind. Why don't be afraid of don't know mind? The don't know mind is the mind that reveals everything. It shit happens, so let it be fertile. <laughs> <laughs> it shit happens, let it be fertile. <laughs> it seems like maybe uh, this is a great lesson, but it seems like there's an assumption that you have a hold of the right hand more than you have a hold of the left hand. So then when you get into this, these situations of jealousy and such, um, there's, it seems like there's an assumption that you have this strength from the right hand to deal with this left hand, but in many cases you're often holding on to the left hand more than the right hand. There's more negativity in your life than possible. You may very well be. And so it seems more difficult to deal with that situation. It seems like there's an assumption that you have strength when you're on that left side to deal with it. I, I didn't follow the last thing you said. Well, it seems like you're drawing strength from your logical mind or your knowledge so that when you get into those jealousy situations or other situations like that, you have this strength that, that's, that's holding you up. But sometimes I get into situations myself where I'm so far into the left that 
I don't have that strength to deal with the situation as you suggest when you're talking. You know, to just look straight at it. I mean, I'm gone. Somewhere. Well, this is why this is why a path needs a practice. You train, and in a relative sense, there is training and there is progress. You train attention. This is why we meditate. Do you see what I mean? You make a commitment, and the commitment isn't just like a New Year's resolution once and for all. You're constantly reaffirming that commitment to do this practice. And pretty soon, you, you do have the strength in that sense, the way you're talking about it. It's not a question of strength that's a, a strength that's in conflict with a situation. But you find that you naturally are aware in a situation like that. You can even help it by taking a precept about jealousy, for instance. A precept, I will not react to jealousy. Now, this sounds like the, the, the this sounds like we're starting down the road of the uh, yogi, doesn't it? I will not react. But you take the, you take that precept as a first step. And the next time you get jealous, if you've, if you've been practicing this, if you've been reminding yourself every day not to react, if you've been planning it in your, it becomes a subconscious sort of thing. Then sure enough, when you get jealous, your, your attention, your awareness will kick. It's not a question of strength in a certain sense. This is the strength of your own practice that you've built up. So there you are. Now you're with it, right? Now, okay, you know, you say, oh, I shouldn't react to this, I shouldn't react to this, God damn it, I'm mad. So you've reacted, but you've already gained the awareness, you've already gained the arena, you've already become conscious in that situation, enough to just have remembered the precept, do you see what I mean? It says that it's just, well, in the beginning, it's more of a greater difficulty, but after a while, it becomes more. It becomes easier, actually. In the beginning, it seems like it's more difficult. Because you're tr you're approaching it from just the attitude that you're expressing now. You're approaching it from the point of view, I have to have the strength to do this, I have the strength to face it, you know what I mean? You're already assuming there's a conflict there. What happens on a spiritual path, at some point, it starts to turn around at the, at the more ignorant you become. The more you realize that, you know, there, that you can't do here. This is why the, in, in many spiritual traditions there's this uh, voluminous uh, literature expressing this dependency on God, you know, on the grace of God and the mercy of God and being guided by God and letting God uh, into your life, to run your life, starting to be God-centered rather than self-centered, or as we might say here, being centered in that consciousness that embraces all, rather than being centered in the ego. This is where surrender, the principle of surrender, really starts to take over. So you shouldn't uh, look at a spiritual path as something that ultimately gets more and more difficult. It has a, a phase in the beginning, like anything else you undertake. <coughs> well, some, take that back. Some people in the very beginning have the same thing that uh, you experience in, in any sort of undertaking, a, a little bit of beginner's luck. They sit down, oh, they meditate, it's wonderful. Oh, they have you know certain clarity state and this and that. And then the honeymoon's over, and then it starts to be practice, you know, tough, going, and, and struggle, and discipline, and you get frustrated, and back and forth, and all that. And then you go through this, and, and then it can get very tough for some people. It all depends on the individual. And it can feel like a real battle. And this is why often it's expressed in spiritual traditions that wrestling with Satan or temptations, or do you know what I mean? But at a certain point, it starts to turn around. And it suggests that this, it turns around because the ego, you, ego, start to realize, no, I can't do this. And if it's expressed in a tradition like Christianity or Islam, I can't do this on my own. You know what I mean? And it starts to let go of that effort. And the more it let go of the effort, the easier it becomes. And the more you let go of the effort, the easier it becomes. And then I say, instead of being dragged towards God, you, you're running after God. You know, I, I want to communicate here that, that this is uh, a sense of, of a, an overall sense of a path, and what we talked about specifically in terms of applying this principle of detachment and how that unfolds. In all these situations, there is this unfolding, 
this deepening. You see what I mean? You practice and uh, you seem like you're starting out in one direction and you get to an obstacle. And that forces you into another direction. And that forces you into another, and then another obstacle forces you into another direction. And so, through this maneuvering, this is what the path is made up of. And this is why you, in a relative sense, can look back and say, uh, a year, two years, three years down the line, I can see the difference. I used to be so attached to those things. I used to be so upset. I used to suffer so much because of them. And now I'm free of them or freer. Do you know? This is why a spiritual path uh, enriches your life along the way. But the, the point I'm trying to make here is never become complacent. Never fall into a rut. Every, this is the whole point of the teaching of the left hand of God. The left hand of God is your obstacle. And so if you find an obstacle in your meditative practice, or an obstacle in practice, trying to practice a precept, remember this teaching. Start to say, oh, well, wait a minute. Maybe that's a form of God too. Let me go back and look at that obstacle again. Maybe it's not really an obstacle. Maybe it's a stepping stone. And boy, when you start to see all the obstacles as stepping stones, you skip. You go flying. Really. The silent sage over there. <laughs> okay, let's uh, bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to stay and have tea, of course, and check out the library and uh, check out some of these books if you want.